Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. He's also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Jim, we do have a good martini today, but they're not all good martinis. So I don't know if we need to apologize for that fact, since we've been so generous with the good martinis this week. But uh, either way, uh, at least we have one good one. And given this week, we'll take it. You know, Greg, it was destined to end at some point, much like was it Paul Molitor who had the uh, the hitting streak for all those games? Uh, he had one hitting streak back when we were kids. DiMaggio's got the record. But yeah, eventually yeah. it all comes to an end. Yep. And as far as we can tell, no steroids. <laughs> That's true. Uh, at least I haven't been, Jim. I don't know what uh, you're doing. <laughs> Just kidding. But talk about weird. For the second time this week, one of our good martinis is related to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and not in a sarcastic fashion. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg making the rounds. It's not even like she's got a book or a movie out this time. Uh, she talked to Nina Totenberg earlier in the week and talked about how she hates the idea of court packing. It was wrong when FDR tried to do it, and it's a terrible idea to combat perceived partisanship. She just wants to see it go back to the way it was. But now she's talking again. This time uh, she was being interviewed by one of her former clerks, a guy named Neil Siegel, now teaches law at Duke University. And here's what your colleague John McCormick writes over at National Review, and it's getting a lot of attention. On Wednesday night, Ginsburg delivered a 30-minute speech looking back at the 2018 Supreme Court term and the life of the now late retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens before participating in an hour-long question-and-answer session with Siegel. When Siegel asserted during the Q&A that, quote, nominees for the Supreme Court are not chosen primarily anymore for independence, legal ability, or personal decency, and then he says, I wonder if that's a loss for all of us. Ginsburg immediately defended Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, saying, quote, my two newest colleagues are very decent, very smart individuals. And she went on to talk about how in certain cases where she was not on the same side as the Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, that she actually assigned a couple of opinions to Gorsuch and one to Kavanaugh. And she says it's still the most collegial place she's ever worked. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg crushing narratives at every turn this week. Yeah. And, you know, good for her. This was definitely not the response her questioner expected. Uh, We didn't get any real good sense of what the reaction in the room was. But I think it's safe to assume that, you know, that wasn't necessarily what that crowd wanted to hear. And it would have been very easy for, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to kind of chuckle and move on to something. But she felt the need to jump out and say, these are two men who are very decent and very smart. You know, look, we we give Ruth Bader Ginsburg a lot of grief, very often deserved on this podcast. But, you know, it is, if you want to get past this stage of seeing fellow Americans as the enemy, of seeing them as people to be, to be viewed with contempt, the idea that there is nothing of value in them because they disagree with you on political matters, legal matters, things like that. We need to get back to more stuff like this. And as you know, it's, it's been very interesting to watch Ruth Bader Ginsburg turn into this um, quasi-celebrity figure, the dolls, oh, I almost said action figures, although I, last time I checked, they could have that too. Um, the T-shirts, the idea of, you know, notorious RBG and, and all of that stuff, the appearances on Stephen Colbert. You know, it's been very weird to watch a Supreme Court justice turn into some sort of, you know, quasi-celebrity, kitschy, you know, tough grandma figure. I, I almost figured, Greg, at some point we're going to see her in a, in a, was it a Wendy's commercial saying, where's the beef? Wendy's, yeah. The other big headline to come out of that appearance 
was the quote, I am very much alive. (laughs) Now, when you need to clarify that, it's a very bad sign. And I think many folks would say, maybe an argument you don't belong on the court. Uh, if you knew that, you know who would make like really big news if they issued a statement saying I am very much alive, like <laughs> Elvis, right. Andy Kaufman, DB Cooper. You know, there there are uh, only a short list of people who have good reason to say I am very much alive. And if you're issuing statements like that, people may think, uh, okay, well, um, how much longer? Exactly. Well, remember the old Soviet leaders, like when we were kids and Brezhnev got sick, and it's like, oh, he's just got a head cold. He's fine. A couple weeks later, he's dead. George Bush seniors go into the funeral. Hey, and drop off. He's fine. Then he's dead. George Bush is headed off to the funeral. And on and on and on. Chernenko, too. Uh, it's an old joke in the Reagan administration that he finally got one who didn't die on him. And so he finally negotiated with Gorbachev. But uh, you're on that third one. George H.W. Bush is like, look, it's a long flight. I'm getting tired of coming over here. How's the health of this guy? Because I can stay. All right. Just <laughs> let me know. Otherwise, got to fly over, fly back, would not be prudent. <laughs> not the most efficient use of the government funds <laughs> or the fuel. Going to buy a condo. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, still wrong uh, from a conservative jurisprudence uh, perspective on virtually every issue. But uh, we do respect her collegiality and her, like we said earlier in the week, her respect for the institution of the Supreme Court. So. Mm-hmm. Jim, let's move on to our, I don't even know how you characterize this. I guess it's the bad martini because it uh, brings to light um, something you don't hear a lot from certainly the Democrats and also the media. This is CNBC. Executives at Wall Street's biggest banks have begun throwing financial support to their early favorites in the 2020 Democratic presidential field. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. All three candidates combined to receive contributions during the second quarter from at least 15 bank executives from Goldman Sachs. J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, and Bank of America, according to Federal Election Commission records. The donations represent just a fraction of the millions the candidates brought in during the three-month frame, yet they provide clues about where these well-heeled donors could place their support as the campaign barrels towards the first voting contests of the season, which begin in February. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, the other top candidates in the field of 20-plus, have set the tone of the campaign by calling for breaking up big banks and eliminating tax loopholes that favor the wealthy. So, Jim, shock of all shocks, Wall Street's not too in love with Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. But this, uh, and, and you know, they like to cover their bases here. It's not like they don't donate to Republicans in contested primary fields either. But when you look at where Wall Street generally stands in presidential races, they usually line up on the left. But that's not what the left would love to have you think when it comes time to debate taxes or anything else. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I suppose we should not be surprised. Like, if you, from the perspective of the menu of these these top tier candidates, by the way, let's notice Bitter O'Rourke. No one's really saying he's in that top tier anymore. You know, well, okay, you're you're probably not going to give to Warren, who's running on nationalizing the banks, and you're not going to run on or you know Sanders, who wants to call for a Bolshevik revolution. So that's who's left. And by that standard, yeah, I guess you could say you know Biden and Buttigieg and Harris are the the less vehemently anti Wall Street, anti bank candidates out there. I, mean, I think it's also worth noting, and I think probably will become an issue later in this campaign. Joe Biden, being a senator from Delaware uh, all those years, you, if you get credit card statements, you probably noticed there's a good chance your credit card company uh, has a return address in Delaware. And it's always been where a bunch of big banks and a bunch of credit card companies have been there. He has basically done what the credit card industry and big financial institutions have wanted him to do, particularly when he was in the Senate. 
he, I think at one point, at some point when he and Warren are on the same stage, she, uh, in one of her books, ripped into him for watering down legislation that she thought was very important to protect uh, people who were getting credit cards and stuff like that. So by that standard, yeah, I guess you could say Biden is probably the one who's going to be most friendly to, to banks and Wall Street. What I'm kind of intrigued by, though, is this idea of like, let's say you work on Wall Street. Let's say you work for Goldman Sachs. I assume you don't think of yourself as evil. <laughs> I assume you don't think that there's anything inherently unethical or morally wrong or legal but shouldn't be legal uh, about what you do every day. I assume you're not, you know, how do you feel about lawmakers who treat you, who speak about you as if you're the devil? Now, by the way, some people might say, uh, Jim, how do you feel about Republicans who demonize the media uh, and you're a reporter? And I have a very easy answer to that, which is that, you know me, I never donate any money to anybody. So <laughs> makes that a lot easier. But, you know, again, the perfect, all reporters are scum. Well, not all reporters. But anyway, so, you know, you and I have given grief to, to doctors and the American Medical Association when they supported Obamacare. And then all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, this is terrible for our industry. Yeah, you know, a bunch of us tried to warn you. <laughs> um, the only other thing I can think of is that whether or not Goldman Sachs bankers, you know, the institution that was run by <clears throat> John Corzine, think of themselves as bad think of themselves as evil or malevolent or something. They know there's this perception out there. And so let's say they're out at a party and so oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I, I'm a banker at Goldman Sachs. And somebody recoils or somebody, you know, you know, uh, gives some sort of, you know, negative reaction to that. Maybe they say, oh, but I'm a big Democratic Party donor. And they, oh, okay, all right. You're one of the good ones then. Okay, that's fine. It's, very, it's buying indulgences like in the old church, Greg. Wow. I can't believe they're that in love with Harris. She can't make up her mind when it comes to government-run health care, and she doesn't seem like she's all that friendly to big business. I'd have to take a closer look at her record in California as AG, but if you look at the way California tends to uh, focus its political priorities, uh, helping business doesn't seem to be the at the top of the list. So, uh, curious. Yeah, there was one bank that she did not go after in California <laughs> that her staff wanted her to. And I believe it's One West was the name of it. And ironically, uh, you know who you know who was a big uh, big guy over at that bank? Who's that? Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. <laughs> Boy, that that that's giving you know she those who pay attention to these issues are giving her grief about that one. By the way, you know Stephen Mnuchin, big Hollywood guy, big banking guy, big finance guy, uh, donated to a lot of candidates in 2016, including one Democratic senator, Kamala Harris. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I, no, she didn't even say thank you at the confirmation hearing. Can you believe that? <laughs> shocking. Absolutely shocking. Well, I wonder if uh, Biden's going to point that out, that she's real cozy with Steve Mnuchin because he's promised to be less polite uh, this coming week, Jim. So uh, I'm sure. Oh, it'll be... God, won't that be awesome? <laughs> Do it, Mr. Vice President. Do it. See if he treats her like he treated Paul Ryan. That could get real fun. <laughs> Malarkey. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our final martini, our crazy martini. And Jim, this certainly qualifies in that category. Uh, Turning Point USA gets a lot of attention as a conservative, and I use that term somewhat advisedly here, uh, trying to uh, convince young people to uh, consider conservative candidates and Republicans in particular. And given where most young voters line up, that doesn't seem to be the worst idea in the world because we usually get creamed in that demographic. But uh, they've really cozied up with President Trump. This is uh, folks like Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens. And uh, they had a big event, a Turning Point USA Teen Summit in Washington this week. And 
by all accounts, we wouldn't normally talk about it at all, probably. But something happened there, and so we need to talk about it. And the crazy martini is the only place that it makes sense. Fox News, an aide has been fired after President Trump took the stage at a Turning Point USA event earlier this week in front of a doctored presidential seal that featured pro-Russian imagery and said 45 is a puppet. White House spokesman Judd Deere told the Associated Press officials, quote, never saw the seal before it was projected on a screen behind Trump as he was introduced Tuesday at the teen summit sponsored by Turning Point USA. The altered seal appeared on the projector screen for at least 80 seconds behind Trump before it was taken down, the Washington Times reported. The doctored image featured a two-headed eagle, a direct nod to the Russia Federation's coat of arms, the bird's left claw held golf clubs instead of the original's 13 arrows, which symbolized the 13 colonies. The right claw grasped cash instead of the original's olive branch. The altered presidential seal read 45 es un titere, I think, which translated from Spanish means 45 is a puppet. The authentic seal sports the Latin phrase e pluribus unum, the U.S. motto meaning out of many one. Turning Point USA claimed that in haste, a member of the video team searched for a high-resolution profile of the presidential seal and did not realize that the image was doctored before placing it on the screen behind Trump. So, Jim, generally when you host the president, you try not to be Googling images to put behind him while he's entering the room. But uh, what do you make of uh, this particular incident? Yeah, I think it's safe to say that I like the concept of Turning Point USA much more than I like the actual execution of Turning Point USA. Um, although I am reminded of that old Tampa Bay Buccaneers coach who was asked about what he thought of his team's execution, <laughs> and he said he supported it. So let, let's observe here. And again, Turning Point USA, yes, they're definitely trying to do youth outreach. They feature younger activists. Um, look, this is the sort of perspective that gets easier to adopt the older you get. But, you know, look, as, as you and I, you're, you're getting long in the tooth. Uh, uh, you know, neither one of us are spring chickens here. Thanks, Spent Jim. a lot of years as a, you know, lowly you know, legislation summarizing reporter at CQ, then on to a couple of dot coms, then a wire service, doing grunt work and basically learning things about politics, learning about Washington, learning about how legislative gets passed. And I'm not saying I'm the world's biggest expert there, but you know, I had at least enough, at least enough self-awareness to recognize when I was a polywog, when I was, you know, in my early 20s, that even though I'm, you know, from time to time I may have thought that I knew as much as everybody else, or or, as, or more than a lot of other people, I actually didn't know as much. And there was still a lot to learn, and that there's a learning curve to getting good at this stuff. Um, look, Candace Owens, you know wants to be a conservative. There certainly aren't enough young African-American women who are, are willing to be conservative activists. So in that sense, God bless her. But you know, just because you sign up, you've been here for 20 minutes, I don't know if we need to put your front and center up on stage. Or at the very least, it's good to have a better um, grounding in what we stand for and what we believe and why. So you avoid these little snafus like declaring that the problem with Hitler was that he was a globalist. Greg, I don't know. People are going to have different views of points of that, but you know what I think was really wrong with Hitler? The killing of everybody? The genocide. That'd yeah. be my first thought. That, look, apparently they've already fired the person, and you know, I could kind of forgive the Latin phrase that was in Spanish, but first of all, the two-headed eagle. <laughs> what do you think has been exposed to, to, you know, Chernobyl or something? Some sort of like, oh, you know, generally in the United States, we've always portrayed our eagle as having one head. And you do kind of look at the Russians and say, hmm, have you guys had some, you know, strange mutations going on there? 
Uh, then the second thing is, okay, the golf clubs. I, you know, if that didn't do, like the other stuff is fairly small or maybe you're used to seeing it, but the golf clubs really should have jumped out at you um, as a sign that it's not bad. So, you know, look, in, in my circles, Turning Point USA does not have a sterling reputation. Um, and they, they come across as slipshod and uh, amateurish and not up to snuff, just not having the attention to detail um, that you know you'd expect of a what wants to be a prominent and important conservative organization, and this is you know further fuel to that fire. So you know, get no one to blame for themselves. I'm sure the president's advanced team is kind of mortified. Again, this is you know, talk about an own goal. Here's the thing: you know, there are a lot of groups that would love to have the president of the United States come and address their members, right? When the president does that, you know, you're 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 really getting something special. To go and mess this up on this scale indicates that this was a group that really did not did not warrant and had not earned a presidential visit. And, you know, the president, for all of his flaws, whatever you think of him, did not deserve to be, you know, mocked uh, like that, you know, um, and, you know, found himself in that situation because of somebody's incompetence. Wow. Amazing. Jim, every day brings something we don't expect, but uh, seems to fit our categories quite well. Have a good weekend. Talk to you soon. See you soon, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks very much for being with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone, and tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.